electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome, everybody, to this CNBC special, The Fed Decision. I'm Tyler Matheson. Jim Cramer is off tonight. It was another volatile session for the markets today, all week long, in fact. But tonight, we turn our attention to next week because rate liftoff is here. The Federal Reserve officials are expected to hike interest rates for the first time since 2018 under very different circumstances. This is not your typical rising rate environment. There's uncertainty, the uncertainty of war. There's inflation, inflation at a four-decade high. There is extreme market volatility, and that is changing the playbook for investors. Tonight, what the Fed decision could mean for the economy, for stocks, and for your money. Here for one hour, our resident Fed expert, Steve Leisman, back in the house. It's great to see you here, and he will start us off with a look at the tightrope the Fed walks right now. Hey, Tyler, yeah, thanks and great to be here. It would be a tough run for Fed Chair Jay Powell without the fallout from the Ukraine invasion. But now an inflationary surge is going to pile on an already high inflation rate and the uncertainty of war. It's going to cloud the economic and geopolitical outlook for Fed Chair Jay Powell. Situation on the ground presents Powell with really no good, obvious course. If he hikes fast, he risks market volatility, maybe a swoon in the markets and an economic slowdown. If he hikes too slow, he risks inflation becoming embedded and maybe an economic slowdown on top of that. So what Powell, I think, is likely to do is tell the market only what he knows for sure and go no further until something resembling clarity shows up. For example, hike in March and suggest more to come and stay on course to reduce the balance sheet, but not necessarily reveal it right away. All moves, he'll say, are contingent on the economic and geopolitical situation. The Fed may be faced with a raging inflation problem it has to clamp down on, but it doesn't know that yet. The huge commodity price spike could just as well lead to lower growth and recession. Powell needs to figure out what exactly economic problem he's fighting before he can tell markets how he's going to fight it, Tyler. Which is it then? Is it is it the danger of inflation or the danger of runaway prices we, or inflation? We don't know. We, we don't, just know. don't know. The, the things are things are dramatically different this time around. We this is the first uh, oil price spike we've had. All of them before have led to recessions. This one we are have an economic an oil balance of zero. We'll talk to John Kilduff about this in a little bit. The money that we used to shovel overseas in a price spike like this stays here. Mm-hmm. If you can tell me what 
the oil companies are going to do with that. How much are they going to spend on drilling wells? I can tell you what the offset is. Definitely going to hurt individual consumers, hurt the users of petroleum. But a lot more of that will stay in the country. In addition, we also are using less gasoline per person than we used to. So I guess one of the core questions here tonight is how has the war in Ukraine changed the spin on the ball and the thinking in the Fed? I think that's absolutely right. And I think for sure it's more uncertainty. And I think that tells them to go slower, even in the face of higher inflation, telling them to go faster. And Tyler, when you opened the show and said, we're going to talk about next week, I thought you were going to end it with because this week was so lousy. <laughs> yeah, well, let's hope next week is a little bit better. Steve, it's great to have you here and we'll be together uh, the entire hour. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told CNBC yesterday that she does see a soft landing for the U.S. economy as the Fed raises rates. We've got a good, strong economy with a, an excellent outlook for the labor market and real activity going forward. Inflation is a problem and it's one that we need to address, but I don't expect a recession in the United States. All right, let's see if our next guest agrees. He's Roger Ferguson, former Federal Reserve Vice Chairman and a CNBC contributor. Mr. Ferguson, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. Nice to be here. So which is it likely to be, in your view, soft landing, stagflation, recession, what? I think there are a couple of things that we know for sure, and there's a lot of uncertainty, as Steve was saying. What do we know for sure? We know that inflation is high and likely to go higher. We also know, as Secretary Yellen said, that we start in a place with relatively low, very low unemployment, you know, increasing those still relatively low labor force participation. Uh, and so I think we have really quite a, quite a brew here that you're dealing with. I heard uh, the clip that, uh, where Secretary Yellen said she doesn't expect a recession. I think no one really expects a recession, but the odds of a recession have certainly gone up because of the challenging circumstances. Do, do oil price spikes, and we had one briefly earlier this week uh, to 130, but it's come back down a little bit. Do oil price spikes uh, cause recessions or are they coexisting characteristics of many recessions? Well, I, I think in the, in the past, the last time we saw oil price spikes that were associated with recessions was back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And there are two of them, 73 and 79. Uh, I think Steve said a couple of points that were really important. First, it was much more of a tax on our economy because the money was flowing overseas. We now are much more in, uh, energy independent. Secondly, um, we actually use uh, less oil than we used to. I've seen statistics that say that you know the equivalent for what you know this kind of oil would have been would be basically uh, $200 per gallon oil would be the equivalent of the kind of spike that we saw in the 70s because we have become you know more much more energy efficient. So I think the challenge around oil is that it is a drag for sure. Steve's right where those where those oil dollars go uh, does matter. But it certainly takes money out of the consumer's pockets and it increases the uncertainty uh, that the Fed has to deal with in terms of how to deal with inflation. So challenging situation because of oil price spikes often associated with recession, not clear that they cause the recession. Roger, uh, it, it's good to see you. T take us through. You've been in the boardroom there uh, in critical times, things like 9-11, if I'm not mistaken here. And I think I covered you uh, uh, doing that back way back then. Um, if you only looked at the economic data, 3.9% unemployment rate, 7.9% uh, inflation rate, 
you, you might say, hey, let's raise 100 basis points today. And yet you have this uncertainty over war. How does that factor into the boardroom and the discussion there at the FOMC? Well, I think you said it very, very clearly, which is the situation at hand is one of high inflation, well above the 2% target. Unfortunately for them, uh, for my friends and former colleagues at the Fed, this is due to a supply shock, and we know that monetary policy alone cannot cure a supply shock. So I think the answer is go slow, continue at a 25 basis point um, uh, pace for the next maybe two or three, maybe four meetings, perhaps take a pause and see what happens. Uh, signal clearly that you've got your eye on the inflation ball, but also say very clearly that you have to be nimble, as Chairman Powell said, uh, very flexible and recognize the downside risks. So I think this is one where you sort of inch along, knowing that you can't set it and forget it, <laughs> and literally making decisions every meeting but with a lean towards fighting inflation because you need to keep inflation expectations under control. Roger, without debating what exactly happened in the 70s, um, one of the ideas out there was that the Fed monetized the oil price spike. It provided the fuel for the fire. Does the Fed have time to wait? I, I completely agree with your idea, but wouldn't, isn't the risk that the Fed essentially monetizes the price spike? There's a risk of that, for sure, but recognize that they started a place where um, longer-term inflation expectations only a smidge above you know, what their long-term goals are. Without getting too technical, if one looks at the inflation expectations sort of five years out starting um, and, and going from five years from there, it's roughly around 2.3%, so close to the 2% range if you think further out. So the main point there is inflation expectations are not yet you know, beyond uh, their control. And that gives them, I think, the opportunity to do to go a little slower. Um, there's also the expectation, as you well know, um, that you know, more oil can come into play. They're discussing with Venezuela, uh, working hard with OPEC Plus to see if they can produce a bit more. Uh, and so this is not, uh, the game is not lost yet when it comes to, to energy and to the earlier point, we are not as uh, energy dependent as we used to be and not as dependent on foreign producers as we used to be. All right, Roger, we'll leave it there. Wishing you a happy weekend. Roger Ferguson, thank you. Well, the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq all suffering weekly losses. The Dow down for five straight, extending the market's volatile stretch. There you see the weekly market declines. Nasdaq, once again, the hardest hit this week, off three and a half percent. And now investors need to figure out what happens to stocks as rates start to, quote, normalize. Let's talk with Simeon Hyman. He's the global investment strategist at ProShares Advisors. Simeon, welcome. Good to see you. Um, what typically happens when there are geopolitical shocks like the one we are enduring right now? How do, how do equities perform uh, over the medium and long term? Well, over the medium and long term, they do fine. And in fact, in most geopolitical shocks, the impact has been quite short-lived. If you look through 9-11, the beginning of the pandemic, 
the uh, invasion of Kuwait. If you look at all of those events, they're measured in weeks and a couple of months. The real exception to that, if you look, it's almost hard to declare a day, but let's say you start for the Lehman bankruptcy, and then you see a protracted uh, downturn that took a couple of years for people to you know, get their money back in the equity markets. But that's because that was a marker on the way to a long and protracted recession. So if we don't get a recession out of this, and, and we're in the camp of thinking it's reasonably unlikely, given all the factors you just discussed, the smaller impact of energy than we used mm -hmm. to see, the continued strong economic growth coming out of uh, coming out of the COVID recovery, uh, then you're looking at a relatively short-lived event from an, from an equity market standpoint. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, nor do I mean to trivialize what's going on in Ukraine. But by, uh, by implication, what you seem to be saying is that economic conditions, inflation, and interest rates, i.e. the Fed, are in the medium and longer term going to be the more important uh, factors or vectors that we need to concentrate on. I think that's true. And if you're looking for signs that that's sort of the way the market's thinking, think about this. We've had no Treasury rally. I mean, the 10-year is exactly where it was when the invasion started. And you know, I'm from the school, if you talk about putting a bond portfolio together and you're looking for the big diversifier to equity, so you say go buy some zero coupon bonds, you know, in case there's a pandemic or a war or something. Well, it didn't do a darn thing this time around. You know, the impetus for rates to normalize is so strong that, yeah, we got a, we got a, a brief rally in treasuries. We got a little bit of flattening, but really very little. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, you had a much bigger Treasury rally. It got somewhat unwound quickly. But, you know, here we're not seeing a lot because the uh, the trajectory is likely to remain in place, well, the, hopefully, as we all hope for a political solution. The ride on interest rates has been a wild one over the past couple of weeks, Steve. It, it, it sure has. And, and Simeon, could you give me a, I don't know, maybe a bottoms up answer to a top down question here, which is <laughs> Goldman Sachs brought down its forecast to 1.7%, which is below potential. Uh, they brought it down by half a point. They added another seven-tenths of a percentage point to inflation. They said there'd be a big hit to consumption. What happens to company earnings in that environment if the pie is not growing as much as we thought the pie would grow? Now, I, I understand you may not agree with that forecast, but in any event, in, in, a, in an environment of the pie, the growth of the pie is getting smaller, what happens to earnings in that environment and what happens to stock valuations relative to earnings? So we're in a slightly better place with a 10% correction in the uh, in the S&P and the, we're trading at about 19 times 2022. Remember that, you know, even if the 10-year treasury went to 2.5 or 3%, that's still historically low, and it would on average support something around a 20, 20-ish PE. So overall, that's not a particularly uh, expensive place to be. But yes, it does make sense to think about who some of the winners and losers will be at the margin. You, you, you put up on the screen some of the obvious sectors that if we have inflation, that's somewhere between kind of the 8% that we just saw and the 2% long run trend. So something that's modestly elevated, there's still some sectors, energy of course, but also if you've got things like financials and materials that will likely have a, a little bit of a leg up. So you can certainly make, make some moves to tweak your equity portfolios, um, but even if uh, earnings overall don't quite come up to where expectations were before, uh, before the conflict began, um, it's likely not to be a big risk. 
Simeon, uh, I, I was making a joke with Tyler about it having been a lousy week. I, I wasn't alone in that sentiment. If you look at the consumer sentiment today, it was pretty terrible. What does that tell you about the outlook for consumer spending and some of the stocks that are linked to consumer sentiment? Well, when you're looking at the consumer, first, uh, it was important that we all noted how much smaller the energy sector is. So it certainly does have an impact on sentiment. But the good news is it's not the impact that we would have seen 50 years ago. But it's absolutely a piece of the puzzle. Um, if the conflict goes on a little bit longer than we all think, um, that can take a little bit of a wind out of the sails of the quote unquote reopening trade. You know, and the answer to that, to some extent, is to look at those quality growers. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I find interesting and when folks are looking at the equity markets and they're worried about rising rates and maybe they're worried a little bit about things like consumer spending, you hear this notion right. of, well, go to short duration equities. What does that even mean? I mean, a P.E. of 10 for a stock equates to a duration of 11, which is twice the aggregate yeah. bond index. So All there's right. kind of no salvation in no growth equities. So I think you still have to count on some of the stalwarts who will show up with some growth, even right. in a little bit of a choppier market. Simeon, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time this evening. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Much ahead on this CNBC special, the Fed decision, including a closer look at oil, is a prolonged price spike the biggest risk to the economy? And could it upend the Fed's rate hiking strategy? The experts will weigh in next. And as we head to a break, take a look at some of the best and worst performing Dow stocks today. McDonald's, Caterpillar, and Travelers up. A lot of the insurers were higher today, but there are some consumer companies and even J.P. Morgan Chase down by multiple percentage points. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
Rising oil prices creating an even bigger inflation problem for the Fed, spiking since Russia invaded Ukraine a couple of weeks ago. Crude now trading around 109 a barrel, hitting an intraday high of 130.50 earlier this week. The volatility highlights how much the world relies on oil and gas and how supply disruptions can cause major dislocations in the market. Russia, here's some facts for you, supplies about 11 percent of global oil consumption, 17 percent of global gas consumption, and roughly 40 percent, though it's disputed a little bit, of Western European natural gas consumption. Now, the Fed cares about rising oil prices because they, of course, snake through the economy in many different ways, hitting consumers, generating higher input costs for companies, everything from chemicals to plastics to building products. So how high could prices go? Let's ask John Kildoff from Again Capital. John, good to have you with us, as always. Good evening, Tyler. Good and, to see you. And I have another prosecutor with me, Steve Leisman. He's here. Do you think oil, uh, that 130 uh, on Monday, that 130 price on Monday was frightening because it seemed like it was going to keep going up, uh, but not so much anymore. Are we in the, the, the rough area where we're likely to be for a while, sort of 95 to 110-ish? That seems to be the landing zone right now, Tyler, uh, based on what we're seeing in the market. That 130 print was, you know, buy now, ask questions later. No doubt about it. We weren't sure just how much Russian oil would go off the market uh, and, and what the next shoe to drop would be. We know now that energy has been carved out by the Europeans, especially, and uh, certainly China. So there's a bulk, the bulk of Russian output is going to remain on the market. The UK and the US embargoing uh, Russian oil, I was sort of kidding around that uh, it's sort of like giving up going to church for Lent. You know, it's, it's a real pretty easy thing to do if you, if you want to do it for those two countries. But the Europeans can't do it and the Chinese can't do it really. And we don't want them to do it because that's when the mad scramble for barrels then goes into full blown uh, panic mode and we cannot fill the gap. So in a way, this is a, a, a smart move uh, to allow uh, you know, most of these barrels that are going via pipeline to continue to flow. Am I not correct that, you, that the major European countries have, have indicated that they want to cut the, their dependence on uh, Russian oil and gas uh, as soon as later this year? How much they're able to cut it uh, is anybody's guess. That's question one. Question two is this. What if Putin takes the drastic step of cutting the oil and gas supply to Europe? He would be cutting off his nose to spite his face in a way, because then he has no foreign currency coming, has no currency coming in, but he could do that as a retaliatory move. Well, I mean, if he wants to engage in a scorched earth situation uh, outside of nuclear weapon use, then this, that would be it. Because right now it's a shotgun wedding between Russia and the Europeans, okay? Because as you just said, he needs the petrodollars, they need the supply. And, you know, again, to, to think, for them to think they can get off meaningful amounts of natural gas and or Russian crude oil uh, by the end of the year is just, you know, aspirational thinking of, of the third or fourth order. It's an impossibility. Okay, all this takes time. And it's why we have to be a lot more careful about the, the talk yeah. and the plans for the energy transition John, to renewables and clean energy in the future. John, real quick, quick we, 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 got, we got to jump. But the Russian oil was having trouble getting to market. 
that's one of the reasons for the price spike to 130. Has, has that been worked out? Is it going to be worked out? People wouldn't ship it. People wouldn't unload it. People wouldn't insure it. Has that problem worked out? You got to make a different a distinction, Steve, between a waterborne shipments, tanker shipments, and the pipelines. There are direct pipelines from Russia that feed the, the majority of Europe, European refineries. And of course, there's a vast pipeline that supplies China. So that oil is flowing. You don't get involved with having to post letters of credit and, and technical financial uh, aspects here. So I just wanted to add one quick thing to your conversation yep. tonight. Our U.S. economy is a lot less energy intensive than it was in the 70s. But make no mistake about the impact this is going to have on the consumer. It's like a tax. And you saw the consumer confidence numbers plummet today. That's just the beginning. All right, mm. John Kilduff, thank you very much. John is with, again, Capital. All right, can higher oil prices tip the economy into recession? That has been sort of the dark behind-the-scenes discussion here. Goldman Sachs today put the probability at as much as a 35% chance of a recession and cut its forecast for growth, citing soaring crude and the fallout from the Ukraine-Russia war. Let's bring in Diane Swank, chief economist at Grant Thornton. So can these rising oil prices, if they stick at this level, tip the U.S. economy or maybe the global economy into a recession? Well, certainly parts of the global economy are going to suffer more than we will. I do think the combination of higher oil prices and high rate hikes could up the risk of a recession in the latter part of this year. In fact, I'm looking at the U.S. economy with seven rate hikes this year by the Fed to stall out in the second half of the year at about a 1% rate. That's not enough to keep the unemployment rate from uh, rising again. And I think that's a very important distinction to make. It's a semi-hard landing. It's a recession in everything but name only in that we don't actually see a contraction in growth. But it is really different. It's remarkable how resilient the U.S. economy has become to higher oil prices. We've seen that over the last decade, and I think that's very important. It is because we are driving more fuel-efficient vehicles, and we are better at how we handle oil than we were in the past. That doesn't mean, and as Steve pointed out, we also produce more oil. That yeah. said, not many people are employed in the mining sector, and I think that's a really big problem, too. But it really is the yeah. one-two punch of rate hikes and higher oil that get you into a recession. Diane, we can, we can sit here all night and enumerate the problems that we're going to be facing. They are considerable. But we have a few assets. Unemployment, 3.9%. We did 7% growth in the fourth quarter. We have an economy that looks to be getting back to normal. I don't want to jinx it. People are going out doing their thing. My band keeps getting booked all the way through October <laughs> now at this point, which I think is a major economic indicator. Congratulations, Thank Mike. you. Um, <laughs> but, but how does all that play into this issue that you talked about, which is resilience, the resilience of the economy? I would sure rather be hit in a stronger position than in a weaker one. Well, that's exactly it. You know, we the resilience is sort of a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because we can weather the storm a little better. It's a curse for the Fed because it puts more weight on the Fed shoulders to actually raise rates. And the fine line that they're walking is not just the series of rate hikes and being cautious. That is certainly something to do when we've got these volatile markets. But the real issue is they don't want the markets doing the job for them. And that is a seizure in credit markets. Mm. If we were to see some kind of a seizure fall out of this, where a 
developing economy defaults other than Russia on their debt, that could spill over on our own shores and be much more costly as we saw 2008, 2009. Financial crises are not the way you want to get to a recession, as opposed to a Fed-induced slowdown that we could recover out of. And I think that's the fine line that the Fed is walking. Diane, always great to see you. Diane Swank, we appreciate it. And still ahead on this CNBC special, the Fed decision, the new rising rate investing playbook in this environment. Everything is different, especially when it comes to buying bank stocks. We'll talk about that big one next. And as we head to a break, take a look at the climb in the 10-year Treasury yield this week, right back around 2%, roughly where it was when Russia invaded Ukraine. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. The Fed historically has had a direct impact on bank stocks. They tend to rise when bond yields rise. But recently, the opposite has been happening. Since late February and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, bank stocks have underperformed, as you see in that graphic there. It's a peculiar move that some say is a sign the war is driving rates more than the Fed is driving them. So who matters more to the banks, Powell or Putin? Here with his Fed investing playbook is Stephen Bigger. He's director of financial institutions research at Argus. Stephen, welcome. Good to have you here. Why don't we just pose the question the way they did? Uh, who matters more to the bank stocks, Powell or Putin? Well, uh, short term, I think it's Putin, but long term, I think it's Powell. Uh, you know, this is a an expectation that the Fed will embark on a, a, a close to a two-year at least rate height cycle here. And that's a powerful uh, cyclical tailwind for banks. Uh, for bank balance sheets, uh, for net interest margin expansion. And frankly, uh, the banks can do well, even if it's only the Fed funds rate that moves up and, and not necessarily the if the long end doesn't cooperate. Uh, banks can still benefit. I from guess that one of the term. things that has has surprised me as I observe it, and I'm, I'm not as close an observer, obviously, as you or, or Steve, is that some of the large uh, multinational investment banks, the J.P. Morgan's, they have been hurt more relatively than the regional banks that do more of their business on spread lending and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. While we're favorable on, on financials and, and banks in particular, 
the regionals are really the better play here. Uh, you know, the, they're really much better tied to the narrative of higher rates, better mm -hmm. lending growth, lower credit costs. Uh, and the, and the, let's take a look at the global banks. Um, if you think about investment banking, uh, I mean, this has been moribund uh, this quarter. We had last year was $146 billion of, of IPO activity. So far this quarter, we've had $2 billion. Uh, so, you know, about 40, 35 to 40 billion a quarter, and we're at 2 billion, and actually 1 billion of that was TPG uh, in the second week of January. So it's been a really bad quarter for, for IPO <clears throat> activity. Uh, on the flip side, though, uh, trading, obviously doing very, very well for, for the large banks here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is exactly the type of environment they want. We've got this volatility across the spectrum equities, fixed income, currencies, commodities. Uh, you know, that should be doing very well. Uh, right there. But hey, uh, yeah, the offsets will be in, in iBanking and, uh, and M&A activity. Hey, Stephen, I'm not going to have a discussion with you about convexity trades and delta hedging because I'll never be invited back and we'll fast reach a place where I have no idea what I'm talking about. But is the idea of the Fed getting out of the quantitative easing business and getting to the quantitative tightening business, does that mean more volatility in fixed income markets and markets in general? And does that mean greater income for the investment banks because of the volatility? Well, losing the liquidity obviously is you know we'll we'll have to uh, see how that goes. Uh, you know, this is I, I think the tightest timeline between when when the bank has has unwound uh, some of the quantitative uh, easing and and gone right into uh, rate increases. I mean, there's there's no gap at all, right? Uh, so I I think you're right, uh, and that that could you know spell um, I think better uh, you know revenues down the road uh, for them. And I frankly, there's been too much liquidity sloshing around in the market, and I think it's good it's being removed. Do you have two favorite regional banks real quick, just their names? Uh, sure. Uh, PNC Financial and Truist. All right. Uh, both great regionals, good lending growth, and uh, with catalysts of acquisitions. All right, Stephen, thank you very much. We appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. And we are just past the bottom of the hour here, and let's check where we ended the week on Wall Street. It was another volatile session today, up, down, all around the Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ. Well, they closed at session lows. The Dow had been up 342 sure. points at its high, and it ended off 229. It was really a sort of slide in the last couple of hours of trading. The index notching its fifth straight weekly loss. Uh, NASDAQ uh, closing 21% below its all-time high. That means bear market for NASDAQ. Uh, more than 60% of the NASDAQ shares are in a bear market. And there you see the S&P uh, down 1.3%. We've got a lot more coming your way on this CNBC special. Up next, is the Fed behind the curve? You hear it a lot. The message is, uh, the, of the fixed income market is sending to investors. We'll debate it. We'll look as we head to the break now. A look at fintech stocks. They had a rough session today. Look at those multi-percentage point declines, 10% uh, or more in some cases. This group also feeling the impact of uh, tighter monetary policy. Well, you're looking for places to hide in this inflation-driven market volatility. In a recent report, Goldman Sachs said stick with stocks with high and stable margins, including well-known names like eBay, Coke, Visa, Pfizer, and others. And CNBC contributor Sarath Sethi says companies like Disney, American Express, MasterCard, Visa, they have strong brands that can withstand spikes in fuel costs. And maybe you'll be using your MasterCard to pay for those fuels. Uh, to read more about those stories, you can head to CNBC.com slash 
Pro. It's great to uh, have you back, Steve. It's been a long time. Yeah. We're going to talk here a little bit about whether the Fed is, quote, behind the curve. But why don't we talk a little bit about what it means for certain categories of stocks when the Fed stops being the big buyer of a big class of securities, namely treasuries and mortgage backs. Well, it starts off in the fixed income markets. The Fed is like this big guy. I, I don't have a better metaphor for this, uh, Tyler, so maybe the uh, um, uh, Health and Human Services are going to come visit me, but it's like a big guy you sit on a, on, on a three-year-old. On a child. On a child, and just so he can't move. Yeah. And so all this volatility that would happen because of your cantankerous three-year-old, um, it can't happen because you've got a guy coming in all this money into the market, doesn't care what the price is, he's going to buy it. Just buys. Gets up, gets up, and that three-year-old's going to run all over the place. You're going to have all this volatility in the market, volatility in the fixed income market, and it's amplified. A move to the downside is amplified by the hedging that's required to move to the upside, same way. And all that then echoes off into the stock market, where the fixed income market volatility also echoes into the stock market. And so you're going to earn your money now. There used to be what we called, using another metaphor, remember, like, fifth grade soccer, mm-hmm. everybody got a trophy for participating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a participation trophy market for a couple years. Yeah. If you were in the market, <laughs> you made money. Yeah. It's not going to be the case anymore. I mean, it's going to be harder. You've got to deal with the macro story that's coming your way. And I like what you were just reading there about, well, where do you find companies that are going to let you sleep at so night? So let's get to the, the question we were supposed to talk about, uh, and that was whether the Fed is, quote, behind the curve, which is just a, a simple way of saying, should they have moved sooner, Right. I, I almost certainly. Now, I think back on it, Tyler. Biden comes into office, April, and he takes his bite of the apple. He did what Trump did three months earlier. Trump did $500 billion. He had done $4 trillion before that. So he says, all right, I'm doing one nine on my thing. Now you're the Fed. Do you then respond to the new president's policies by hiking interest rates? By hiking interest rates. In retrospect... It might have been some, at least backing off on quantitative easing. I think maybe an opportunity was missed in the summer, to which Powell would have argued, hey, we had another wave in the summer. Maybe that was not the right time to do it. By November, they got religion. I still don't think they acted fast enough. I think the measure of them being behind the curve is today's the last day of QE. Yeah. They did 7.9% inflation rate yesterday. They're going to hike six days from now. How do you end QE six days before you're about to hike rates. That mm-hmm. seems to be a little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. Uh, behind the curve. Yeah. All right, Steve, thanks very much. We'll, we'll be back and we'll chat a little bit more. We've got a lot more coming your way on this CNBC special. The Fed decision, record low interest rates, made the housing market red hot. But if mortgage rates head higher, will the value of your most valuable asset start to cool? You'll be surprised how much more it costs to carry a mortgage on the average priced house from a year ago. It's a lot. Welcome back to the CNBC special report. One area of the market hanging in the balance of the Fed decision is housing. With mortgage rates spending the last year at all-time lows, is there nowhere to go but up? It sure seems that way. Let's bring in our own Diana Olick to track the latest moves. Hi, Di. Hi, Ty. Yeah, you're right. We've seen a roller coaster in rates since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but they are definitely back on the rise now again as the Fed plays a bigger role in their future. The average on the 30-year fixed is now at 
4.29%. That's a full percentage point higher than it was one year ago, and that's according to Mortgage News Daily. This after falling to 3.9% when the invasion began. That was sending investors to the relative safety of the bond market. Now, mortgage rates follow loosely the yield on the 10-year Treasury, but they're also influenced by the Fed's purchases of mortgage-backed bonds, which it has done heavily since the start of the pandemic to keep rates low. Now it's pulling out, so rates will rise even more. And that's hit the home builders, with the iShares Home Construction ETF down about 22% year-to-date. It's also hitting home buyers right at the start of the all-important spring market. That is, for an average $400,000 home, the monthly payment is now about $200 more than it was just a year ago. And buyers are facing the tightest, priciest market in history. National list prices, which hit a new all-time high in January, are still rising at a double-digit annual pace. 8% of homes are now valued at a million dollars. That's according to Redfin. And that's up from just 4.8% two years ago. Tyler? There are a lot of ways. Obviously, the higher rates have started to, to funnel through. You say $200 more a month I, uh, for the average house. I think people buy the payment, not the rate, as much as anything. But let me ask you this question. How long will it take before higher rates might begin to affect pricing? Well, historically, it's <coughs> about me. six months. That's what you see. If you see sales start to slow down because of that pricing, six months later, you start to see the prices pull back. So that's the gap. But there's a wild card here today, and that is this extremely low supply. So even if you have higher rates, if the demand is still there and you're still getting bidding wars, even with those higher interest rates, then you're not going to see much of that pressure pull off prices. The expectation is they'll cool sometime midsummer. That's the expectation. We'll All see. Right. Diana, thank you very much. Diana Olick. For more now on how rates are impacting housing affordability and what to expect for the spring selling season, let's bring in Danielle Hale, chief economist for Realtor.com. Danielle, I'm going to begin by asking you sort of the same question I I just asked Diana. We've got higher uh, interest rates. Uh, They're going to be coming. We've got the Fed pulling out of buying mortgage-backed securities. That, all other things equal, will probably cause rates to rise a little bit more. So that means the monthly payment's going to go up. How's that going to affect affordability and demand? Yeah, that's right. The monthly payment is going up. In fact, it's already gone up, as Diana noted. And about half of the increase so far relative to one year ago is due to higher mortgage rates. The other half is due to higher prices. So it's really a one-two punch of both higher mortgage rates and higher prices that buyers are grappling with in the housing market today. And that's led to higher monthly payments um, on their mortgages. Now, so far, it hasn't impacted demand. We still see home sales continuing close to recent highs. Uh, Buyers are interested in making a home purchase and making a move. We've got a very large generation of millennial home buyers that are at that peak household formation and home buying years. There's more than 45 million millennials in that 26 to 35 age range. And that's a really powerful tailwind for housing market demand. It's just the right time for them, regardless of whether it's the right time in the economy. Danielle, you could get a C in Economics 101 and know that something is broken in the housing market. Demand is supposed to equal supply at the right price. Where is the supply? Why can't we bring it to the market at the right price? What's broken? Yeah, that is a great question. I think there's a lot of hangover still from the last decade. Um, Our calculations show that over the last 10 years, we've had 
5.8 million homes that we needed to build to house families that we just haven't built. And so that's a really long-term shortage situation that we've been in. And because builders haven't been able to bring those homes to market, we're seeing a lot of the frenzy that we're seeing in the housing market today. This very large cohort of young people just doesn't have anywhere to go. And it's true in the for sale market where um, vacancy rates are near all-time lows. It's also true in the rental market. So um, it's really a combination of what's going on in both markets. We've got high rental prices. So even though home prices are high for a lot of potential buyers, staying and renting isn't a great option either. You're looking at higher costs there too. So where does the mortgage rate need to be to really bring these into, uh, into equilibrium here? Would you say a 6 or a 7 or 8% mortgage rate would start to have the effect of what Tyler was asking about, which is bringing down prices to a place where people might uh, be able to both afford it and bring the supply back to the market? Well, we're still seeing home sales happen. So even though prices are high, costs are higher, people are still finding a way to make it happen. Some of the interesting things that we've seen in the housing market is that with the flexibility people have to work remotely or at least some of the week, more. if not all of the week, they're able to, to go further out. And so look at housing in suburbs and more affordable metros that maybe they didn't consider before. So I think that's uh, something that's created flexibility and opened up opportunities for buyers that weren't necessarily there before. You know, I, uh, I'm a baby boomer, so I'm, Danielle, I'm not, a, I'm not a real friend of the millennials, but I am rooting for their financial health. I want all those, <laughs> all those people from, from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, uh, to move over and take, uh, take me out at a very nice price on my house in the suburbs. So go, you millennials. Go, baby. Danielle, thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. On deck, some final thoughts ahead of uh, next week's interest rate decision. Boomer. <laughs> boomer. Boomer. Yeah, boomer. And stay tuned for the news with Shepard Smith. It'll begin sharp at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. That's seven minutes away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the CNBC special edition, The Fed Decision. At the top of the show, we mentioned comments that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen made here yesterday on CNBC. She's speaking again this evening, saying that tighter monetary policy to fight inflation could cause recession. But she has confidence in the Fed's ability to balance that. She also said the economy is strong. So welcome back to our uh, discussion. Steve, you know, there are a lot of things that we have not encountered and that the Fed has not encountered. Yeah. We have a war in the center of Europe, the largest sort of landmass country in, the, in Europe. We've got inflation we haven't seen in 40 years. We are coming off his, years of historic lows in interest rates. You can't help but expect a lot of uncertainty and volatility, can you? No, you can't. And I think one of the biggest problems with this, Tyler, is well, first, everybody I know, their hearts are, are, are with what's happening in truly. Ukraine and, and truly saddened by what's going on there. The other problem is most guys on Wall Street and women on Wall Street, you present them with a problem and they can see a way out and they can understand, well, this can happen. I can put a probability on this and a probability on that. This problem, people don't see a way out. I mean, we were talking uh, about this issue of how does this resolve itself? Does it resolve itself with sanctions coming off unless Putin is out of office? What does that mean for Putin to be out of office? When and how does Russian oil get back to market? For me, a terribly emotional week watching what happened in Ukraine, obviously. But seeing these businesses that I wrote about when they first came into Russia 30 years ago with great fanfare, now they're gone. All that progress gone. Not to mention Putin bombing towns in Ukraine in ways that you thought would never happen. 
this creates massive sadness and massive uncertainty, and so very difficult to put probabilities on outcomes here. Yeah, it, it really, really is. Uh, and we started by, by, I started by asking you how, how the war changes Jay Powell's thinking. I think he has to think about a different world in part because one of the things that has been a theme for a while, it began under Donald Trump and maybe even a bit under President Obama, is deglobalization. Mm -hmm. And globalization, and I'm stealing this idea from my friend Ron Insana, who put it very eloquently today. He did indeed, we, in a piece, we, yeah. Yeah, we organized uh, supply chains around efficiency, and now we may organize them more around security. It won't be good enough to have it over in China or in Russia or in Ukraine if it's a vital part. And so that means higher prices, less efficiency in the global economy if we organize it around security. Not to mention, we have for at least a period of time here, Tyler, had a, a Cold War ending windfall. Mm -hmm. That may go away. Europe's yeah. gonna spend more on defense, we're gonna spend more on defense. Good for the defense companies, bad for the economy. A tank is a dead end product. It's yeah. not used, hopefully. Yeah, it's a, it, it, I think we, we've come to, a, to an age where we have so many dependencies that now, uh, that now have been exposed as vulnerabilities. I think it's a good way to put uh, it. China, yeah. in particular, not, uh, they make semiconductors. They make a lot of medicines that we take. I just heard tonight there's critical parts of chip manufacturing done in Ukraine yeah. in a town that's now been destroyed where 1,500 people were killed today. Yeah. There's a certain neon gas that's made there. I heard on, on the way in here, yeah. um, and, and chip makers around the world are going to be hurt because of that. It's a dependency right. that we may come to regret. Steve, it is great to see you. You too, Tyler. Nice to have you back. That is all we've got for this uh, hour-long special. It's a few days until the Fed decision. On Wednesday, I'll be hosting the exchange and power lunch from outside the Federal Reserve on Constitution Avenue. Steve will be reporting on the decision all day. Tune in to CNBC Wednesday for full coverage and market reaction. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.